to those who pledge their lives in sacred honor, was smiled upon by God and freed from chains and iron collar. He is held aloft on unity and by history revered for preserving peace through strength. His wings now reach across 200 years. But for each of those in one year more, God has smiled upon the core from the Barbary coast to the eastern sand by sword, by gun, or by their hand. So it's been and shall be weighed. Though many are born, few are made. Faithful always they shall remain. Dogs to loose when war is waged. This is episode 51. With this episode, our 50th podcast, we are going to step outside our comfort zone. My comfort zone is Vietnam and tracked vehicles and tankers. But addressing the elephant in the room, I believe I am one of the youngsters who went to Vietnam when I was 18. I am now 73. We are now probably what most people would call part of the old corps. We used M48 tanks and 90mm cannons and 30 and 50 caliber machine guns. And today, the Corps uses the M1 Abrams, and not really anymore, but <laughs> major look, huh? Missiles, rockets, drones, keyboards, cell phones, and computers. As much as I want to keep our war in front of the public, I am going to open our podcast up to some new ideas. Those Marines who have come after us are responsible for keeping the legacy of the Corps. Those who have fought wars after us also have the need to talk things out, to let everyone know what war is like in the 21st century. This will allow those warriors to leave a legacy for their families just as we have done for ours. Starting with this, our 50th episode, we will be talking to a Desert Shield, Desert Storm warrior. and I will talk about his experiences in the Middle East, and between us we will compare and contrast the Desert Storm issues with Vietnam. On the fly, Rick can share some of his combat experiences, and together we can see what sort of things are different and what sort of things never change. What will never change, of course, is the Marine ethos. We are brothers. We are Marines. Build on the floor, and if another one stands, I'll kill some more. Bullet in the breach and a fire in me, like a cigarette and throw the gasoline. If death don't bring you fear, then death ain't brought by no marine. Come to me, 
And so, listening audience, allow me to introduce Rick Curtis. Rick, say hello to our listeners and let us in on your entry into the Marine Corps, please. Hello, everybody. Hello, Tree. Thanks for having me on, man. I'm excited to be with you guys. Um, I'm, I'm currently 53 years old. I, I went into the Marine Corps uh, at the ripe young age of, uh, I actually delayed entry programmed in at 17. Uh, my mom signed the, uh, the, the papers with me and allowed me to, to start attending pulley meetings while I was still in high school. And then six days after I graduated, I, uh, I shipped off to Harris Island, South Carolina. And, uh, I think my dad chuckled the entire trip knowing that I would be there in the middle of the summer and enjoying all of those sand fleas and that sweltering heat. But it's a pleasure to be with you and uh, I've been looking forward to this uh, this moment for sure. Well, thank you, Rick. You know, it's interesting. I had, I had the same experience. Uh, my mom had to sign for me. I was 17 when I went in. And the only way she would sign for me was because my birthday was in November. I, was, I would turn 18. She said, well, I'll sign for you, but you have to promise me that you'll stay with me till Christmas, after Christmas. And so, uh, like just as you did, I I, uh, I promised her I would stay. I stayed until uh, after Christmas and was uh, had my footsteps or my my footprints on those yellow footprints on uh, January sixteenth uh, of nineteen sixty eight. Wow! So, uh, you attended boot uh, you attended boot camp in in uh, at PI right? Yes, sir. Harris Island, South Carolina. Uh, in 1988, I went. I shipped off six days out of high school, and then uh, we were one of the. After we graduated boot camp, we were part of a new program that the Marine Corps. Uh, I'm not sure. My dad called it ITR. I'm a second generation Marine. Uh, my dad was Third Force Recon in Vietnam, and um, I became a second generation Marine. And I know he called it ITR infantry training regiment we called it school of infantry soi and uh graduated that found myself in charlie company forming over at camp geiger over near camp lejeune jacksonville north carolina and uh it seemed like it was taking awfully long for us to form up charlie company forming only to find out that we were going to be the new uh marine combat training uh experimental series and this was something that they implemented uh, back in and around that time, 1988, where immediately following Marine Corps boot camp, we got 10 days of leave after our 13-week boot camp, and then we went to we we went home for 10 days leave, and after the 10 days leave, we reported back to Camp Geiger to form up for what we would thought would be our MOS training, and then on into the fleet, only to find out that we were given an extra experimental 30 days uh, in the field. Uh, where we were, we were really digging in hard, uh, hardback tents and and stuff for future Marines that would follow through. Not entirely sure how of how the timeline falls now as far as do the, do the recruits get out of boot camp and go immediately into MCT training, which is what I thought was happening, but I'm not entirely sure. So yeah, I formed up and uh, I was gung ho at the time. I wanted to be a straight up 0311 ground pounder. <laughs> Uh, I knew that I wanted to somehow be able to get a chance to take a stab at becoming a not just a United States Marine, but uh, a, a recon Marine. Okay. I did take the indoctrine, and, and about that time, we shipped off to uh, 
Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and kind of grateful I stayed in my MOS, uh, and because uh, it really worked out being in country over there for some of the terrain that we were in and those sorts of things. But uh, I was standing there in line, and we had, we had done the first part of our training, and it come uh, come time to where they literally had those six foot fold open tables and a couple of metal fold open chairs and. Uh, there's NCO ICs that are there and, and different things like that, and they're really breaking down the company after we got into uh, the regular school of infantry there, and they started, for lack of a better way of saying it, passing out MOSs, and I stepped in front of the, the corporal that was in front of me, checking off his his paper, his uh, his clipboard chart there. He says, "We're going to make you an 0352," and I'm like, "Oh, uh, this." This, this private wants to be an 0311. Uh, we're going to make you an 0352, trust me. Next. So uh, on I went and, and learned how to become a United States Marine Corps tow gunner. Oh. Tell us about that. What's a, t- tell us, explain what a tow is first. And... Yeah, it's, it's a, I'm grateful, man. What a, what a great group of leathernecks. It's an 0352 is the, is the MOS, and it's a, Tube launched, optically tracked, wire command link guided anti-tank missile. We were we were tank killers. Oh, oh, oh. Um, yeah, and, and I, please don't take offense. I, I have a lot of respect for for you, Blues, uh, who's who's kind of the one that's uh, linked us up and, and had me excited to talk to you and stuff like that. Yeah. And we challenge each other on, on, every time we see each other. We we carry our Marine Corps challenge coins in our pocket and what have yeah. you and. Uh, yeah, I became a tow gunner. I didn't know much what what that was. I had some of my friends that I had become friends with there uh, pretty instantly became O three thirty one machine gunners, O O three forty one mortarmen. Um, some of them were dragon guys, which is kind of a smaller version of of the tow, a little less maximum effective range and capacity, if you will. Mm-hmm. More lighter, light light armor. Uh, implemented and, and those sorts of things, but we were attached to uh, a tow unit um, or the tow platoon, rather. We were with headquarters company Eighth Marines. We were assigned at the regimental level, but we were attached to weapons companies. And, and most often, our section there's three sections of tow guns in a platoon. That's uh, eight tow guns hard mounted on M1046 hardback Humvees. Uh, the slant back Humvees, and, and then um, and then there's one uh, section leader, which is a Mark 19 automatic grenade launcher, hardback mounted on a Humvee. And our section, the the nine vehicles, if you will, we would always seem to deploy with First Battalion Eight Marines Weapons Company, which was uh, a really great gig, man. I got to tell you, I met some uh, really stand-up uh, Marines. We were uh, combined anti-art armor teams. I was, uh, I got a chance to, we floated to the, we were 24th Mew over into the Mediterranean mm-hmm. and we got tasked as a fast attack Jeep squad. So they took our tow weapons, our anti-tank weapons that mount on top of these Humvees and they, um, and they put them on these fast attack M151 Jeeps that you probably remember from your era. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'd jump in the back of a 10 uh, CH-53 helicopter. There'd be three vehicles. It'd be a 50 cal mount, Mark 19 automatic grenade launcher, and then a tow gun. 
And man, it was the time of my life going, life going all over uh, the Mediterranean. We trained. Uh, it was like old rat patrol. <laughs> you know, we'd uh, we'd land into these LZs. We trained with the the French Foreign Legion, oh, wow. uh, the Israeli Army, the Tunisian Army, the Spanish Royal Marines. Uh, it was it was a really cool gig, man. I enjoyed it. And and then so many other things uh, transpired from that um, because we were in and around. The, the air wing unit so much yeah. and tasked with them well, we, we did a lot of ship reinforcement we were spy rigging we were we were uh, doing all kind of fast roping onto LKH supply ships and uh, doing hardened uh, well as, as best we could on a ship we'd set up 50 caliber mark 19 spots yeah. uh, we were learning fire suppression but it was it was great man when they when I was in like I said in the school infantry and they gave me an opportunity He's like, trust me, we're going to make you a tow gunner. I am super grateful because I still got to do all the things I really wanted to do. I, I took the Marine Corps and Doctrine. I, I made it. Uh, not the Marine Corps and Doctrine, but the, um, the recon uh, test. Oh, okay. It passed. And right right before I passed, right after I passed, we deployed over the Desert Shield, Desert Storm. So I never became a recon Marine, but I did have the gratification of, of doing the run, doing the swim, yeah. and, and all those sorts of things. It felt very accomplished. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. Where, where were you stationed? I mean, were you, uh, Emmy, you, you, you were on board ship all the time then in the Mediterranean? Uh, no, we, we deployed in 88, uh, no, 89, excuse me, and went on the, I was on board the USS Iwo Jima. Uh -huh. That's it, LPH-2 landing. It's basically an aircraft carrier for helicopters. We had uh, seven CH-46 Sea Knights. We had uh, five CH-53s on the stern. Well, we had uh, AH-1 attack uh, Cobras. We oh. even had some Aviate Harriers that were doing flight ops from time to time. A big, big ship. A little bit of history to that. First time, I guess it was called the LPH-2 because the first time they christened it, put it in the water, it sank. And, and the story that we were always told was they had to add like 140,000 pounds of concrete to the hole to make it float. Oh, <laughs> <Two figures. laughs> um, but no, we, I, I floated over the Mediterranean, uh, and then we came back six months, 14 days later, and was back at uh, Camp Lejeune Mainside until the Desert Storm, oh. Desert Shield, and then we went Alpha Alert, and then they flew us out of Cherry Point, uh, and then into a bigger airport where TWA flew us on our 12-hour flight over in country to Saudi Arabia. Um, we only floated once, yeah. um, but we had the time of our lives, man. Wow. So your equipment was all there when you got to uh, when you got to. Uh, I'm sorry. Let me back up and say, uh, when you were deployed, where did you end up? Um, uh, uh, yeah. We. I'm pretty sure we flew into. Uh, Man, I was talking with uh, my associate this afternoon, was telling him, I said, man, I said, I certainly hope I start remembering places and things like that, because it seems such a blur. But we flew into Saudi Arabia, and most of our stuff, we were on alpha alert for, oh, a few weeks before we even flew out of the United States. And <clears throat> we had packed up all of our gear. Um, you're probably aware of the, 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 the alert increments 
Alpha Bravo Charlie, each one steps you up in, in regards to when you have to bug out. Mm -hmm. And Alpha Alert means that you're on the tarmac in 24 hours and, and leaving the country. So we basically were, for the last month before we headed over to Desert Shield, because it wasn't Desert Storm until the ground offensive kicked off. Right. Uh, we flew in, but before that, a good month and a half, I want to say a couple months, we had bags packed, sea bag drag, ready to go, and uh, and ready to ship out. Uh, we were given, you know, a short lease as far as liberty. I was a brown bagger at Camp Lejeune. I was married mm -hmm. and uh, was driving in each and every day for muster and, and what have you. And uh, and then I would uh, go home at the end of the day until we were we were in the field a week, out of the field for a week when we were mm -hmm. at Camp Lejeune. We were, I was with 2nd Mardiv. Okay. An 8th Marine Regiment mm -hmm. and attached to 1st Battalion 8th Marines Weapons Company most of the time that we did any kind of training at the point. It just seemed to be, that's how we rotated. Yeah. Our 2nd section and our 3rd section, they would go out with 2-8 uh, uh, and then I, I believe it was 2-4 mm -hmm. and what have you. But we always seemed to, to rotate with those guys. Did they did they give you enough time to, to at least forewarn your wife? Yeah, I mean... It, it was kind of, um, in fact, for about the last month, I think my wife at the time, uh, we had made the decision because of everything that was in the news, everything that was in the headlines, that it would be better if she just went ahead and started packing up. We, we had a little duplex that we were living in just mm -hmm. off base there. <laughs> and um, I think we had made the decision as a couple of young kids. She was two years younger than me to send her home and be with her family. So for like the last month before I left to go to Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. I was there. I had, I had packed the bag, moved back into the barracks there uh, oh, okay. off of C Street. Yeah. And she went on home to uh, Florida, where we were from. Okay. okay. Interesting indeed. Um, yeah. Uh, so you land in uh, Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And where, where were you posted then? Oh, see, this is where it all gets blurry for me, man. It just seemed like, so we got there, um, we got loaded up, we got, we, you know, we were weapons hot, um, mm -hmm. given all the ammunition, grenades. When we first got into country, um, it was a, a big learning curve. We were sandbagging our Humvees, oh, wow. um, you know, put, just because people were blowing up left and right and you didn't yeah. know what you were going to run over out there. Yeah. So we were putting sandbags in the bottom of our Humvees, squatting the suspension, doing whatever we could to kind of harden the vehicles that we were driving around. And then uh, as we as we tick-tocked down to, I think it was, what, January 15th, mm -hmm. if the memory serves, something so, like I that. I think that's about right, yeah. When the ground offensive kicked off, um, we, we got closer and closer. We, we were real close to the border. I want to say the obstacle belts, not which really went right along the Iraqi-Saudi Arabian border. Mm -hmm. I think we must have set up a position, oh, two, three miles south of the Iraqi border, okay. just south of the obstacle belts. And I know we were close because uh, Saddam Hussein and his army had, um, that's when they were knocking off all the wellheads and right. uh, setting all the wells on fire because one day it would be uh, just as sunny and hot and oppressive as it could be, and then the next day it could be 10 o'clock, uh, 10 hundred in the morning, and mm -hmm. and 
it would be pitch black outside tree from all the the, the wind would shift wow. and all of that uh those oil um, um i don't know what you would call them those 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 oil rigs would be burning and, and we were inhaling all that stuff yeah yeah so you, you that that's all that smoke and garbage blew your way at times yeah absolutely um i remember one of our last one of the last positions we took up for about eight months we were about seven miles west of kuwait city and we were one of the last infantry units um for the marine corps and 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 for our end of it if, if you picture an arrow or like a big arrow swooping up through the obstacle belts. Mm-hmm. Um, if you ever get a chance to take a look at the map of it, we were like the right echelon of that arrow, the lead right echelon mm-hmm. with our combined and arm teams. And um, yeah, we uh, we set up our last position. Like I said, was about seven seven miles west of Kuwait City in a perimeter, and uh, we stayed there for about eight months. They would they would get us all set to go back uh, stateside mm-hmm. and then they'd stand us down and they'd get us all set up to go back. We had a few guys that uh, couldn't really handle that. Hey, we're leaving. No, we're not leaving. So we had a few guys commit suicide and oh, wow. some different stuff like that. Yeah, just because of, you know, uh, being in country, being shot at and, and yeah. all those sorts of stuff. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. A lot of stuff like that going on. Yeah, yeah I, I understand. So, what um, what, we, what we were something we picked, I don't know how many operate you know it's for us we were on operation after operation you know and it was small or large or sometimes it was combined and all that sort of stuff but and I don't understand how you guys operated so can you explain a little bit I mean was it just a a giant push was it were there you know multiple prongs uh, hammer and anvil or how, how did some of that work yeah I, I tell you I, I remember being level four mission oriented protective posture we had the old carbon suits beetle rubber mask m17a2 over boots gloves we were mop level four uh when they said that we were going across the obstacle belts and and it really was we had we had ah1 attack cobras flying overhead probably 100 feet off the deck um, ready to lay down suppressive fire. Yeah. Uh, we had Amtraks uh, that had line charges ready to go across the obstacle belts because uh, it was like a three-layer obstacle belt going from Saudi Arabia into Iraq. Uh, and there were multiple units. I mean, we'd see Blackhawks, we'd see Apaches, we'd see um, we'd see M113 variant armor personnel carriers. And, and to my knowledge, we weren't using any of those. Those were a tracked army uh, vehicle. Mm-hmm. I know that there were um, LAV-21s, which was an eight-wheeled uh, light armored vehicle that, that could be uh, fitted for just about everything. They had a tow variant, they had 50 cal variant, and what have you. Mm-hmm. But it just seemed like we were uh, assigned our combined arm teams, mm-hmm. and and we started moving forward. And it was like regimental-sized movement. I mean, when you looked across the battlefield, it was wide open desert. Yeah. I mean, this is when I say when I was in in school of infantry and later would be grateful getting my 0352 MLS. Our, our tow weapon, 
Uh, our anti-tank weapon had a maximum effective range of 3,750 meters, mm -hmm. about two and a half miles. And uh, the missile that we fired, I remember correctly, was like 65 pounds, and it flew at about 0.9 Mach, okay. 200 meters per second. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, most of the stuff that we were staring down, we were fighting T-54, 55 main battle tanks that were left over from Russia that had been sold to Iraq, mm -hmm. and a lot of data T-62s uh, and those sorts of things, BMDs, BMPs. One of my first kill shots was a BM-21 uh, multiple rocket launcher and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we, for us, the, the way the tow works is it's not a fire and forget system. It's a wire guided missile. You have to track your target. You've got a big day site, you got a night site, a thermal site, um, and you, you have to stay behind that, that, that site and tracking your targets, you're keeping the crosshair. So if you've got a, a tank moving left to right, right to left, down range, you're basically keeping those crosshairs on that target and you're traversing that that tow weapon system. And then you've got up and down handles, little knobs that would crank up the elevation and what have you. Um, most of our tracks that we were doing were between 12 to 15 seconds to where you couldn't move. Yeah. Uh, once you get set up in a firing position, you're there and you're pretty vulnerable uh, for small arms fire and stuff like that while you're tracking that uh, target downrange. Most of the stuff was 12 to 15 seconds, like I said, downrange. And uh, the first second or two is a, is a huge whiteout. The way the tow missile works, it has two motors. It has a launch motor and a flight motor. Both of those have a, one's a liquid fuel, one's a, a solid fuel, and they both burn up pretty instantly. The, the launch motor kicks it out of the launch tube at about 12 meters outside the tube. The flight motor kicks in, and both fuels are, are burn up instantly. So technically, it's coasting to its target at, at 200 meters per second. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of those blasts, builds like a 12-foot flame out the back over your shoulder. Dude. And uh, and that usually engulfs you. So for the first second or so, you're you're kind of you can't you don't really see anything, and then all of a sudden things clear up. And on the back of a toe, they've got this thing. It's called a xenon beacon. It's a, it's a shuttered little IR source that sends a, a signal back to your day site, and then uh, in turn that is transferred to a missile guidance set, so on and so forth. And then when you make your corrections at the traversing unit that's mounted on the vehicle, left to right, up and down, those, uh, those direction changes are sent through the copper wires that are spooling out of the back of this tow missile heading downrange. Um, so, and, and our environment's wide open, so when I say I was grateful, man, I'm thinking, I went from having a, an M16A2, which was 550 or, or 500 meters uh, air, or point targets, 800 meters area targets, to to having this tow gun that I can reach out. And most of the stuff, like I said, T-54, 55, main battle tanks, most of the standoff, they were shooting 1,800 meters, yeah. so we could just sit back and duck shoot them all day long. It, oh, well. was, it was crazy. Yeah. So you didn't, despite the fact that you had to be stationary, you didn't have to worry too much about some incomings. Unless it was indirect, uh, we, we there was a few times we had uh, mortars called in on us, uh, in larger indirect fire that was, you know, called in on us and those sorts of things. The problem that 
one of the biggest challenges I think that we experienced while we were in country was at any given moment, the wind could change. And when it did, uh, that created a whole new challenge by day because you couldn't see your hand in front of you. I mean, Tree, when I say oh, it was thick smoke, I remember waking up when we were seven miles west of Kuwait City, one of our last spots, like I said. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember 10 a.m. It was like we would do guard duty and what have you, and you know, I have a day off or whatever, you sleep it in. I remember waking up at 10 a.m. one day, and I literally was searching for a flashlight. I could barely, and I'm not exaggerating, barely see my hand in front of my face. Uh, it would get that thick. I remember... One, uh, one of our first skirmishes when we got into when we were crossing the obstacle belts wind changed it got really really black and you know when you're when we would travel uh as far as operations you think of like a uh, an 0311 a grunt squad you got 13 guys in a stick they're doing a staggered column they're doing inch long right inch long left those sorts of things they've got a certain amount of distance that way one frag rate doesn't take out the whole the whole section yeah. or the whole squad same thing with tow guns only we were just vehicle mounted so depending on the terrain depending on visibility uh we would 150 200 meters between vehicles we would we would do bounding you know if there was a if, if there was a curve up ahead or some structure or, or mountains or rocks or or if we were in some of the city you know, somebody would go post up with their vehicle and peek around the corner just like you would if you were on foot. Yeah. And then we'd call a call sign, and the next guy would come blazing up there, and, and we would just kind of yeah. leapfrog and through and, and doing those sort of things as far as our movement would, would, would go. Oh, wow. uh, but okay. it was wide open, man. I remember when we crossed the obstacle belts, looking to my left and looking to my right and just feel like I could see military vehicles as far as the eye could see. Wow. Yeah, it was just wide open. I, my dad, I remember him telling me stories from uh, recon and, and being over in Vietnam and talking about triple canopy mm-hmm. and, and all this stuff. And I just, I can't even imagine the, the stuff that you guys had to fight through and, and go through. And, and, and just because of that, the traps and the inherent danger. I mean, we still had our fair share. There was, they had gotten smart. Uh, you're probably familiar with Bangalore torpedoes, oh, yeah. long tube torpedoes. They, they were getting real savvy to how they would, would, would set those up so the mine plows couldn't, uh, they would rake basically right past them um, oh, wow. and all those sorts of things. So uh, we, we were also tasked with uh, doing battle damage assessments. Uh-huh. Uh, our combined NRM teams, 50 cals, like I mentioned before, Mark 19s on tow guns, we would escort the, 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 COs and the the chief uh, or the uh, the the the, commi- the non-commissioned officer staff non-commissioned officers around. They were doing body counts and vehicle counts and damage assessments and stuff. Yeah. And uh, you know, every now and then you run into stuff. We 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 cleared bunkers. I mean, we were really tasked with just whatever was necessary. I remember uh, one of uh, one of the, the day that I got blown up. Um, we ran over, uh, they never determined if it was a cluster bomb, an IED, or, or what. Mm-hmm. All I know is we had been clearing bunkers, and we were we were uh, out of the vehicles. We had grabbed our TO weapons. I had a, a 9 mil Beretta 9 mil chest holster. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had, I 
took both my, I had an M16 also, I said, we're going to the desert, I'm not going to take a pistol, why would I shoot 25 meters when I can, qualified expert at the range at 500 meters, give me my rifle. Yeah, there so, you go, yeah. You know, um, so we, we, we dismounted from the vehicles and they, they tasked us with clearing bunkers and, uh, you know, we got into a little hand-to-hand -hand combat, uh, took care of business. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a couple, you know, during that moment, guys bugged out making a run for a big tank truck and we jumped me and my assistant gunner he's uh, i'm like go 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 we got to pursue yeah. we ran back to our vehicle about 50 meters and jumped in he fired our for humvee i got up in the turret and we went about 100 meters and ran over whatever we ran over and uh, yeah it, it flattened all four of my humvee tires bent the rims in half looked like somebody took like a oh, some sort yeah. of laser torch underneath and just completely shaved it and, wow yeah, we we were we were like a little bit of everything, man. We really were. We were. My first uh, kill shot was multiple rocket launcher. Once we crossed the borders uh, of the obstacle belts, and then I got a uh, two. I got a BMP, a BMD. They're like uh, maybe six foot tall. They got like boat front ends. They're armored personnel carriers. Uh -huh. uh, two T fifty four fifty five A battle tanks and those sorts of things. Um, and the, the train was crazy because we would travel in pieces of the desert. You'd go for clicks and clicks and clicks, and then all of a sudden, you would see huge fields of 12-foot chain-link fence with barbed wire at the top surrounding these farms of grass. Uh, I, I think they were trying to stabilize the, the land so they could grow and farm, and you know, we'd, we'd be following Amtrak's. They'd drive over the, the chain. Uh, these chain link fences where the poles were and they bend the poles which would make it possible for the Humvees yeah. uh, to, to follow over um, we were doing another mission we had mission oriented urban terrain we were doing mountain stuff where we passed by these little shanty villages and uh, it looked like they were, there was nobody there and then out of nowhere man you just start seeing little heads popping up and you start taking fire in fact, uh, one of my favorite moments to talk about, we were, uh, um, after our first skirmish, once we crossed the belts, we, we continued to move our forward movement um, up towards Kuwait. And uh, we were following some Amtraks, and we went across to one of these pieces of fence that had been knocked down so we could make it through with the Humvees. Uh -huh. And uh, my, my section leader, platoon leader, actually, uh, Gunny come up and he's got a 50 cal uh, on top of his vehicle and he's like, hey, Tango 2, be advised you've, uh, you're losing something underneath your vehicle. So we stopped and uh, I got out and there was, there was a visible trail for a good 150, 200 meters behind the vehicle and apparently one of those poles had come up and slapped the bottom of the Humvee and done it just perfectly enough to where it pulled the, the drain plug out of the tank so I was losing all my diesel. Oh gosh. Yeah, so we dismounted, we jumped down off, and uh, my my assistant gunner, it's a two-man team in a vehicle uh, for the Marine Corps. I know the Army uses a four-man tow team. We use two. Your driver is also your assistant gunner, your reloader. Yeah. When you're up in the turret, he passes you another round and what have you. And uh, Potter and I jumped out. I'm like, come on, man, we got to go. We got to go. We got to find out what's going on because, I mean, the we were moving so fast that... The unit wasn't going to wait for us. They're like, hey, 
The yeah. motor pool is going to be pulling up behind us. We're going to keep moving. Yeah. So I watched a lot of our unit go past, and as soon as they got like a, a, a good break where we didn't have much support, we were kind of pretty much just dangling out there all alone. Uh, we were about 150, 200 meters from the vehicle, and we started taking AK rounds uh, all in the sand around us. Oh, wow. And Potter and I turned around. We started running back to the, the Humvee, and as soon as we got back there, um, we were also given grappling hooks because our, our <laughs> logistics were terrible. We were moving so fast that they couldn't keep up with us uh, as far as uh, supplying us. Yeah. Um, so they would give us a, a grappling hook, 100 feet of rope or so, and they said, if you come across munitions of any sort that you can use, be careful, booby traps, but take it. So I had a, up in my turret, I had my M16. Uh -huh. I had an AK, I had an AKMS, uh, Czechoslovakian stamped AK, full stock. I had five uh, magazines of 7.62, wow. um, and all that stuff. And we had, we started taking small arms fire from this little shanty village. And uh, thank goodness I had back when the Marine Corps was still uh, doing the tanks. Um, I had some M1 arms roll up, and uh, we started handing arms signal. You know, over there, over there, boy. Yeah. They lit that place up. 30 millimeter guns, HEDP rounds. It was nuts. They made it was just decimated when we got done. Yeah. Gave them gave them a nice salute. Thank you very much. And they carried on their way. We waited for motor pool to catch up to us. Got another tank and or not another tank, but another uh, drain plug or whatever. And, and then we put the unit, which ended up embroiled in a, a major fire fired up ahead of us. We were listening to it on the on AMGRC 160, the big radio there and stuff. Sounds like... But we were used... Don't go ahead, please. I was just gonna say, we were used in so many different... Uh, in so many different ways, which was which was cool because that was really the way it was from the, the moment I really got into the fleet. Like I said, we trained with French Foreign Legion. We were, we were spy rigging. You know, I'm a tow gunner, and then all of a sudden I find myself working with French Foreign Legion, hanging below a CH-46, uh, you know, where they extract you and, 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 and put you into an LZ because the, the helicopter can't land. So they drop this big, huge, thick rope and it's got carabiners on it. And you basically buddy up and you and you hook into this line while the helicopter's hovering. And then it starts to, to rise up out of the top of the trees. And with you, you, uh, you know, you're dangling, you know, what, 50 feet below the helicopter as it's flying through the air? Just Jeez. crazy stuff. But we did all kinds of that kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah. Uh, wow. It sounds, it sounds more like uh, World War II type of conventional warfare, though. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was. Um, uh, we, we were... Our, our squad leaders would meet. They'd have these... these We'd be given our situation report. We'd be given our, our marching orders. And they, they'd pass out uh, MREs. We were doing MREs. We didn't have the sea rats. We had, we had people that were purifying water. And, and we'd have water bowls where we'd go up and fill up our five-gallon uh, jerry cans that we would carry in the Humvee and canteens as much as you could. Uh, once we left base camp in Saudi Arabia, most of the time we were we had combat engineers that were digging us in uh, and we would go like whole defilade full defilade mm -hmm. positions with the vehicles um our 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 man spots we would we would dig fighting holes 
and uh, we'd put our shelter halves, you know, you'd buddy up and put our shelter halves and snap them together. I got, man, I got so many, t- I got tons of pictures uh, when we were, once things started kind of winding down, we were still living that way. And, uh, you know, you'd, you'd find some sort of makeshift, I don't know, something from your pioneer tray, your shovel, your axe handle, whatever, stick it in the ground. You'd be trying to wash your utilities out in the desert. We were uh, taking a shower out of a, a canteen, yeah. you know, pouring that over your head, standing in missile guidance set and all that kind of stuff. Uh, most of our fatigues, we were washing by hand and those sorts of things, trying to hang them on makeshift clotheslines and, and what have you. It was it was pretty crazy. Yeah. Pretty crazy. Yeah, it sounds... It, 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 I don't... I think I might have changed fatigues once or twice yeah, in 13 I months. We didn't. I mean, it, my dad tells me he had jungle rot uh, around his ankles. Yeah, had, yeah. Uh, I mean, all the Asian orbs that was sprayed all over those guys and the vegetation and stuff like that. It was, I mean, we, I, I tread lightly when I feel like I'm complaining and telling stories, man, because I, I know you've got listeners there that have been through the thick of it. I have such a huge respect for uh, any and everybody that's gone through Vietnam and the stuff that you had to endure, the things my dad shared with me that made me the gung-ho hard charger that I wanted to be yeah. when I was in there. Um, and I, and, I, and I, I, I just want to say uh, a big thank you oh. because I realize that every time that we've had a war, a battle, a conflict, whatever you want to call it, right. I know that there's huge learning and, and you know, what worked, what didn't work, that goes yep. into the, the next generation. And I can tell you, uh, I'm super grateful for the lessons that our country learned, my hope it learned, um, and that we were able to benefit from from many guys that paid the price, you know. Yeah. Well, you guys did, did the work that needed to be done. There's no question about that. And I don't think anybody from Vietnam would slight you in the least for, you know, you... you uh, you you don't you, you don't have a choice of conditions, you don't have a choice of terrain. It's just you know. You, but you, you know you're the same same core that we were. You know you yeah. adapt and and uh, uh, take it take the place over. That's all. And it, whatever it takes to do it, you just do it. So uh, yeah. don't you know, it's, It was. I mean everything. I mean, you, you get trauma from so many different things. Uh, some of the hardest stuff was driving back through some of those areas. You know, they were like, you don't ha- you don't raise your hand. My mama told me don't volunteer for anything, son. Just stay safe. And I remember being tasked to go back and do battle damage assessments and just seeing some of the stuff that was left behind. Even that leaves the smell yeah. um, and, and those sorts of things. Yeah. You can't describe that to anybody that's never been through it. Uh, there's something there's something unique about burning flesh that just uh, it doesn't take but about a split second to figure out. Oh yeah, I know yeah. what that is. Yeah. So yeah, I, I understand it completely. Um, let's let's shift gears here a little bit because you have such a fascinating future after that. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I share with our audience. Uh, 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 I assume you, you. Well, you got back. You got out. Now what? Came back home from. Uh, like I said, I only deployed one other time uh, over into the Mediterranean, and we came back from Desert Storm, and 
the wife that I was married to then, uh, we were taking a lot of experimental medication when we were in country because there was so much nuclear, biological, chemical warfare threat. Right. Uh, we were taking an anthrax preventative medicine. We were taking a nerve agent uh, preventative medicine. And, you know, we come back from over there and, and learn that 80% of the, the the Marines, the military that come back from that country and, and that had been taking that stuff were experiencing some sort of birth defect with their babies, some sort of deformality. Um, I had a baby, my wife had a baby, and uh, she only lived 40 days because of it. And oh. I kind of fell through the crack. I thought, you know what? Um, I, was, I was potentially going to re-enlist. I had a GT score. I was trying to get into air traffic control. Uh, with, with all things considered, my daughter was going to need full-time care. Sure. I was going to make and become a career Marine and stay in. And the last 62 days, when we got back from uh, Desert Storm, um, funny enough, they sent us to 29 Palms, California, where 29 Stumps, where we did back-to-back desert training. <laughs> and then, uh, which I couldn't understand other than we were training the next generation that would go into that country. But um, my last 62 days, I spent at the Portsmouth Naval Hospital with my wife uh, of the time. And, and then our daughter passed away on my chest. We went through a, a pretty turbulent divorce because of all the stuff that we had. So fast forward, I come back home to the, the Tampa Bay area, Florida, and I'm just kind of floundering. Uh, I didn't know it then, but I was self-medicating, uh, doing everything I could for, for the uh, what I now know to have is PTSD and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff, service connected for it. And, yeah. uh, so I'm, I'm in the world, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do. Sure, I got paid for this GI Bill, but I'm not ready to go to college. I'm more interested in stopping all the intrusive thoughts. Became a bartender, fell in love again. She broke my heart. So I go across the way to my buddies at the apartment that we were living in. And I said, hey, uh, do you think I can stay here for a couple of days? He's like, yeah, just for a couple of days because uh, I'm going to go join the circus. And I said, you're going to do what? So, yeah, I'm going to go join the circus. Okay. And I'm like, what on earth? What do you mean? Well, we're going to advertise. And long story short, I took off with him huh? and and learned how to do the front end work. We were canvassing. We were advertising. We were about 10 to 14 days in front of the show. I had never seen the West Coast United States. This show toured all up and down through California from uh, the bottom all the way up into Weed, California. We were yeah. everywhere, Merced, uh-huh. um, all of those places, up into Oregon, Washington. We went up into uh, British Columbia, Vancouver Island. And uh, about a month in, I was drinking with, uh, uh, not glorifying any of that, but I was out yeah. at the show manager. He goes, hey, you're pretty articulate. Did you ever sing or dance? I said, if I tell you I have, don't tell anybody because I'm a Marine. So, uh, I had done some community theater and stuff when I was a kid, and I didn't know what he was alluding to. And long story short, he offered me a position to be, uh, the show split up into two units. So they had this main three-ring circus that would travel for uh, 30 weeks out of the year. And for about six to eight weeks, they split up into two units. And he says, listen, we're looking for somebody that could be a a ringmaster, the host of the show. Uh, Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen guy. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. So that's what I did. I ended up being trained to be a ringmaster. I did six to eight weeks. They paid me some of the best money I've ever been paid. Um, 
and then signed me to come back as their full-time ringmaster. And I ended up doing that for 25 years. I was a circus ringmaster. Wow. I met my wife, who's a ninth-generation circus performer, who comes from a, a family and a lineage of nine generations of circus performing. Oh. Um, ended up working on her uncle's big top circus. Uh, it's a single ring, a European-style big top, uh, mm-hmm. 65-foot main pole, seats 300 people in the round. Um, she's a beautiful aerial trapeze star. She had a one-of-a-kind dog act. She had the only performing Rottweilers in the circus world. Um, she really showcased these dogs that were known for being junkyard dogs and killers and she would show them in a way that people didn't think of them comedy smart dogs loyal dogs uh agile dogs more so than you would think and uh and then we ended up having kids um she had a three-year-old boy when i met her and i fell in love with him as a family like i said i had gone through a pretty tough divorce lost my daughter and I, i wanted to be a dad and here was this beautiful lady with uh, a three-year-old boy, and I thought, man, they need a dad, and uh, and I would love to love on them. So uh, we got married five months later, mm-hmm. uh, made two babies of our own. My kids are now 30, 25, and 21, yeah. and they all became Globe of Death riders. They, they rode motorcycles in a bowl of steel, and... Uh, yeah, man, it's been crazy. And what, and I got to tell you, the reason that I think it set so well with me, man, was it was a lot like the Marine Corps. Yeah. The camaraderie and the... Uh, oh, yeah. The, the working together. Man, I'm breaking up. I can't believe it. Yeah. Get emotional. Uh, it's close. You know, it's uh, it's close to family. We That's what it together. is. We travel together. You know, if somebody passed away, we would mourn. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was a brotherhood. Yeah. A small group. Yeah. With family, you know, it's 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 your own society. Particularly, the way you were yeah. traveling, you, you you took you know it, it, it you took your family with you, and, yeah. and and you know you could you could quarrel. I'll bet you you could quarrel all you wanted inside, but if somebody from outside yeah. decided to quarrel, oh no, oh, no, 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 that wasn't going to work. Amen to that. Yeah. Uh, a lot of trust, you know. Like yeah. I said, like you like you're hitting the nail right on the head. It's like a smaller community traversing the world over for you know we're sequestered with one another 30 40 weeks out of a year and uh travel from town to town and uh, yeah. you know go through the thick of it just different circumstances don't have anybody shooting at you yeah. well, not most of the time anyways yeah <laughs> yeah most of the time. so okay so you yeah now, now let's let me let me introduce to my audience the pastor of a church in florida Mr. Rick Curtis. Rick, tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. Yeah, man. I um, After COVID hit, um, like I said, my wife and my family and I, we did uh, a good 25-year run and, and made incredible money and, and more importantly, met incredible families and shared incredible stories with people. And then along comes COVID and uh, my wife and I had actually stepped away from circus business full-time for a number of years, for nine years or so, but I still managed to do it part-time, if you can imagine that. I would I would leave our home base here in Florida, our home that we had built and, and, and established here in, in Southeast Hillsborough, Tampa Bay area, and uh, I would do a spot date or a gig. I'd go away for a couple weeks at a time, and I'd come back home, and then I'd be home for a month or two, and I'd go away for a little bit more and, and did that. But then this last time, 
her uncle came back around. He's the one that I just mentioned with the big European-style big top. Mm -hmm. And uh, he came into town and kind of wine and dined us, took us out to Marker 4, a, a nice seafood restaurant. We had a $200 lunch, ate every kind of oyster you could eat, fried oysters, <laughs> oysters Rockefeller, uh, raw oysters. Uh, we were toasting the wine glasses and really kind of dangled this carrot of potential retirement for him, potential succession of uh, the Big Top Circus oh. in my charge, 13 uh, tractor trailer semis traveling down the road, me being in charge of it uh, operationally, working hand in hand with the general manager and my wife yeah. and what have you. And uh, along comes COVID and kind of shuts that down. We were 1,500 miles away from home in Lincoln, Nebraska. Oh, wow. And um, the governor, he held out as long as he could and finally had to uh, make the decision to shut a state down. So we came back home with our tail between our legs and I was really disenchanted, man. I felt like the Lord wanted me to have a ministry in the circus business, maybe share scripture. I had an app on my phone. I could. I could translate scripture, and even if it was just one piece of the Word of God, I would put it on the back stage box for people to read, mm -hmm. and I would write it in Romanian, I would write it in Ecuadorian, oh, wow. uh, uh, you name it, Mexican, or, or whatever, yeah. whatever kind of language was necessary, just trying to get the Word of God out, yeah. and uh, ended up slipping back into the world, and that didn't last for very long, so I came home after COVID, and uh, got real disenchanted and I knew I had skill sets. I didn't want to be in charge of anything. I didn't want to have to be in charge of anybody. And uh, I found myself loading dump trucks in a giant excavator and clearing land and, and, and doing that sort of stuff. I just started listening to the word of God. I was like, uh, all right, Lord, I feel like I'm supposed to be in show business. I feel like I'm supposed to be in management, leadership, operations chief, uh, natural born leader, Marine Corps skill sets. And that's clearly not what you got going on in your plan. So what do you want me to do? Yeah. What do you want me to do? Threw up my hands, angry, shaking my fist, thinking I serve a capricious God. And, and you know, yeah. just tell me, come on, make it easy for me. And uh, while I'm sitting there, I started listening to Christian music. Mm -hmm. And then I would listen to Bible study information. And I started, I got this app on my smartphone to where I could listen to it, read the word of God to me. And, um, and all the time that I was in circus business, when we would come home for the winter, we'd be home from October to say end of January before we'd have to go back out on the road. Okay. And uh, we found this little country church that was so reminiscent of my upbringing, Southern Pentecostal. Okay. And uh, the preachers had hair down on their collar. The, the main preacher wore cowboy boots with a suit. And, and I was, and, and my wife said, you got to check out this church. So anyways, that became our home church mm -hmm. from 04 on. And when COVID hit us and we came home from Nebraska, uh, and I got into that excavator, I worked for a couple of years doing different things, uh, really kind of shutting down to the world. I got very isolated. Kimberly, my wife and I, we, we started building for Home Depot and building for Lowe's. We would build all their merchandise, but we'd stand in one of the back aisles, stand yeah. in one place all day long. And really just broken, broken in spirit, yeah. um, lost, didn't know what I was gonna do and started noticing that my church was kind of looking overrun. There wasn't any energy. Uh, and I just came back, I said, hey, can I help mow the grass? I just feel like the Lord's calling me to do something. I don't know what I can do. Just 
let me mow the grass, let me paint, let me mm-hmm. let me do something. Then I got an opportunity to lead uh, Wednesday night Bible study, and then uh, because of my experience, you know, God will use everything to yeah. to prune you and to yeah. and to develop you. Yeah. And I look back, and my life's just uh, I mean, everybody's the same. I look back on and and my years in the in the circus were certainly part of my development into being able to public speak and uh, I took to it man the Lord the Holy Spirit just speaking through me and what have you leading Bible study on Wednesday nights and the next thing I know the pastor said man you've got this I've I've started this church from the ground up I sold my home and I all landed on it 27 years ago I had 12 years before that uh, he's telling me mm-hmm. and he says uh, I feel like you're you're what God has sent to this church so uh, uh, he retired and I became the lead pastor for uh, wow. My little my little country church here in Southeast Hillsborough County. We have a congregation of almost two hundred. Oh, uh, very nice. I'm right where the good Lord wants me, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a, that that you know, <clears throat> it's <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? How yeah. how life's paths travel and you they you don't you don't end up getting what you want, but you end up getting what you need. And more than, and more so. I think about uh, Elisha and Elijah, how he wanted a double portion. Man, I feel like I've been given such a double portion. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. He's, he's, he's given me more than I could ever dream of. Yeah, I yeah, appreciate that. That's, it sounds like, and it sounds like you're doing really good work. Um, I'm you know, trying it, to, man. It's, it, it, one uh, thing I've learned about the ministry um, is, uh, you know, it, when you when you start serving the Lord, um, it, the church people tend to think that the church becomes this place of paradise, and and there's a reason why this most church signs say sinners welcome. You know you got to really strap up with the full armor of God when you get in there because you got people that are dealing with stuff and you just got to learn how to love on them and show them the love of Christ and, yeah. and what He can do to change your life. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly the. That's exactly my approach as well. It's it's a matter of, of, and and you know lo, it's lo, it's easy to love someone you love, and not not so much so <laughs> you got to clive someplace, yeah. and yet you don't you don't get out of it that easy. You don't. You don't. Your heart ends up breaking for what breaks theirs. Yep. Um, I consider very much when when I came to the church and told them that I wanted to do more to help. I just, I know what that church has meant to me since we started attending there in 04, and, you know, we're a family of five raising kids and, you know, um, trying to make ends meet. The, the, the tough thing about circus business is it's so much feast or famine. Yeah. When I'd say we'd be gone for 30, 40 weeks out of the year, uh, 26 weeks were paydays. The rest of the time, you're laying over, you're paying to stay at a fairgrounds. There's a huge amount of expense into it and stuff yeah. like that. So. While it sounds like great money when you talk getting paid, you know, it started out 3500 bucks a week, moved up to $7,000 a week with the package deal that we were offering as a family. That all sounds hunky-dory, but when you start having to budget that 52 weeks out of the year, it really becomes relative. So I can't thank the church that helped me raise my family enough other than coming back and just humbly serving. Yeah. yeah. It's like my wife, my wife taught. And everybody thought, well, you get summers off. Well, you know what? Those summers weren't paid. Yeah. You know, 
they, they got paid 10 months out of the year and they had to figure out a way to make sure that the, not, the other two or three months were covered and yeah. and so it's yeah it you know <clears throat> it's those hidden little things that and please don't misunderstand I'm not complaining but it's just those hidden yeah. little things that nobody really appreciates that or understands that make sometimes can make a difference to you so well you know Rick this has been absolutely fascinating I'm gonna I'd like to wrap this up but not I would like to continue our friendship um, yes sir absolutely <clears throat> I know uh, Blues thinks the world of you, and and if if, if Blues and is with I am Blues has been a, a a real awesome person to be uh, acquainted to and become brothers with. Uh, you know, we've we've all been through stuff and, and and experienced things that are oftentimes hard to talk about, and I and I feel yeah. incredibly honored to have his respect. And, and his trust in some of the things that he shared with me. And it means the world to me. You know, it's it's nice to be able to, all of the things that we go through in this life, they, they kind of uh, make it so that, I, I like to call it, I'm a bilingual pastor because I've experienced so much and so much life experience that I can really think in so many different ways and share stories from so many different things. And uh, having him as part of our congregation and being able to look out there and, and just know, you know, if. Uh, yeah, I hate to even think about some of the stuff that happens these days, but you read the headlines, people walking into churches and perpetrating bad things. Yeah. It's nice to know that I've got people like Blues in my congregation because I know, uh, God forbid, anything happened like that in my congregation, I know that he'd be standing right there next to me trying to save people. Absolutely. That's Blues. That, absolutely. I've, I've known Blues 50-plus years. <laughs> he, he's He's was he was way back when he still is part of the family he is my brother and i i don't mean that just in the marine corps sense but uh, he's he's my brother in the in the familial sense that's just he's you know we, we just got this thing that that it, it i don't know he's just my brother i don't know how to describe it other than that so yeah i i appreciate everything that you've got and you've got a great guy there just an absolute spectacular man i want to thank you very much for for, for being a guest and um, uh, best wishes, to, especially for you and your parish, your church, your, your church family, blessings on you all. And uh, I thank you again. Tell everybody I said uh, hi and uh, uh, peace to all everybody there. And I thank you. I will, I will, Tree. It's been a pleasure talking with you, my brother, and I, I look forward to uh, a lasting friendship, uh, just like you and Blues have. I'm, I'm grateful that you wanted to take the time and and talk to me and, and get on this podcast and and fill in some of the blanks for, for some of your listeners. Uh, you. I feel honored and privileged to be part of this. And uh, thank you for letting me uh, blabber on and on about some of the things I'm most proud of. Thank you. Thank you again, Rick Semperfy. Bye-bye.
think for me personally, I think there was always something when I'm growing up and uh, personally in my life, I think there was always something. I've always wanted to do great things. I've always wanted to make a difference somehow, some way. I always wanted to, you know, it might sound corny or whatever, but do something to change the world, you know? Do something to, to make a difference in society. Is it worth it? Yes, it's worth it. Uh, it's worth the sacrifice. It's definitely worth the sacrifice.